Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director at Word on Fire. We've got a fascinating show for you today because we're going to look at some of the most difficult passages of the Old Testament, ones that have caused Christians trouble and confusion for many, many years. And we're going to look at how some of the brightest minds in the church have understood and interpreted them. But before we get there, Bishop, welcome. Good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you. Let's give everyone a couple updates as we normally begin the show with. The first one is you joined the good folks at the Babylon Bee for a podcast discussion. This is a a primarily Protestant satirical news site, and I think they've recently started this podcast. What did you guys talk about? How did it go? You know, it's good. I I knew their work from, you know, Facebook and their little kind of, uh, as you say, satirical uh, cartoons and comments. And, you know, they're good. I didn't realize they had this podcast show. I think you told me about it. Um, and they were good. You know, we, we horsed around a little bit, just, you know, joking around. But then we got into some pretty serious topics about the culture, where we are today, evangelism, um, a little bit Protestant-Catholic debates. As you say, they're more, I think, on the Calvinist uh, side of the equation. So we talked about that a little bit. But I, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, they're interesting fellows. Um, they, they think seriously about a lot of things, but they also have this playful take on on the world and on the church. So, yeah, it was, it was fun. Did G.K. Chesterton end up coming up? I know that yeah. was a shared bond between all of us. Yeah, he sure did. Um, I, one of the two guys is especially into Chesterton. And uh, we talked about orthodoxy quite a bit. We talked about um, Chesterton's kind of personal style, a number of his ideas, like how he would re- you know respond to situations today, et cetera. So it was, uh, it was lively, yeah. Another exciting update from Word on Fire is the latest book that we've released. Um, We've been working on it for almost a year now, and it just came out. It's titled The Word on Fire Vatican II Collection. Now, let me give you a brief word about where this book came from, why we published it, and then I want Bishop Barron to talk a little bit about it. We realized over the past couple years, there's been a lot of debate, discussion, confusion about the Second Vatican Council, you know, which lasted from 1962 to 1965. It was kind of the pinnacle institutional moment of the church in the 20th century. But since then, there's been, again, lots of debate and questioning and discussion about what happened at Vatican II, what does it mean, are, are we following it appropriately today or not? What emerged out of a lot of these discussions is the fact that so few Catholics have actually read the documents of Vatican II. They, they are published in some forms, but in most cases, you'll find a big, thick, you know, two or three inch uh, book that has these 16 documents from Vatican II in there. And they're a lot of times unreadable because they're unwieldy. So what we wanted to do at Word on Fire was to focus on just the four major documents of Vatican II. These are called the four constitutions of Vatican II. And we've taken these four documents, put them into a gorgeously uh, designed book that's very readable, But then we've surrounded the documents with commentary from the recent post-Vatican II popes. So these would include Pope Paul VI, uh, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis. So you get to read the documents of Vatican II along with the Pope and interpret these documents as the magisterium intends them to be read. Um, Bishop, I know you've been personally uh, advocating a revival of Vatican II and a return to its uh, core documents. I have to imagine this is a great moment for you to see this book released through Word on Fire. It is. It comes out of a deep concern of mine, as you've been saying. Um, you know, I'll oversimplify a bit, but you have two camps very active in the church. 
a kind of progressive Catholicism that wants to go way beyond Vatican II. It wants Vatican III or Vatican IV. Then you've got another group, the, the radical traditionalists, so-called, that want Vatican I. You know, I mean, they want to go back behind the council. And as you say, I'm convinced an awful lot of Catholics don't really know the text of Vatican II. Uh, I'm the first one to say the implementation of Vatican II was very poorly handled in our country. But my generation was the first one to receive this kind of awkward translation of the council. The result is I think a lot of people don't really know what these great teachings are. And so a return to the text is a desideratum. And the text, as you suggest, interpreted by the post-conciliar um, uh, papal magisterium. So that's what this book really is all about. We're not reproducing all the documents, but you say the four major constitutions. And so it gives you a very clear idea of what the central thrust of the council was. And then interpreted by the great uh, popes. And, you know, word on fire, as far as I'm concerned, grows up out of that matrix. Namely, the new evangelization as, if you want, the, the pastoral um, translation of the, of the great conciliar text. I, as you know, follow Cardinal George a lot, saying Vatican II was a missionary council. It was meant to send us out. There's the, the universal call to holiness, right? Because all the baptized are called to be evangelizers and missionaries. That's the, um, uh, the council's teaching on liturgy, the council's teaching on the church in the modern world, the, the council's teaching on the nature of the church. All of that is about this outward thrusting, this, this evangelical missionary church. Read Pope Francis now. And, and I think now his magisterium sort of lights up in a fresh way when you understand this. So that's what this, this book is about. And I'm, I'm very proud and happy that it's coming out. So I encourage you, pick up a copy for yourself. Maybe consider getting a few extra copies for friends or family members and read it together. Um, we're going to be uh, later this year launching some reading groups and guided discussions through these documents, but you don't have to wait for us. Um, get some copies now and grab a group of friends and work through these documents together. You can find it at wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. All right, let's turn to the focus of today's discussion, which is on violence in the Old Testament. Um, Bishop, during this COVID period, you've had, surprisingly, a lot of time to write, and you've been devoting that to this long commentary on different books of the Old Testament. I don't want to give away too many details yet. It's still a work in progress. We're, we're tentatively calling it Bob's Big Bible Book. Um, and you recently got through a section of the Old Testament historical books where anybody reading these books is going to be struck by these pivotal moments where it seems as if God is encouraging the Israelites to wipe out massive groups of people. Um, for example, Joshua chapter 6 says that under God's command, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Um, this is often called harem warfare, H-A-R-E-M. It's a Hebrew term meaning to completely destroy. And it's also referred to as the ban, as in God is laying the ban on a community such as Jericho or the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the ites um, receive this ban. Uh, Bishop, first of all, your work over the last several years engaging atheists, it's this, these passages always seem to be the ones that the atheists know best. They, they yeah. can quote them like chapter and verse. That's been your experience, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a major 
of kind of apologetic concern because you say the the critics of religion often pounce upon these texts and they say, well, this God of yours seems like a moral monster. I always remember that line from um, Richard Dawkins, you know, that the God of the Old Testament is um, as crazy as, how does he put it? He's like King Lear in Act 5, except crazier, you know? <laughs> so the sort of uh, genocidal maniac God that's making these uh, terrible, you know, moral demands. And yeah, so it's an apologetic concern. It's often a stumbling block for people to read the Bible. Now, let me I'll make a general remark first, Brandon, before we get into the into the details. The Bible. <laughs> Can I just suggest almost automatically the wrong way to read the Bible is, oh, look, here's a passage. See that? Therefore, God wants this. Or, oh, see that? See here the Bible says. To give it a technical term, that's called proof texting. You know, you take one little uh, uh, quotation out of context and say, oh, the Bible, therefore God, clearly says. Well, there's so many problems with that. (laughs) But one is, the Bible is a, as I've often said, a library. It's a collection of texts from a wide variety of different eras, written by a wide variety of different authors, using a wide variety of different literary genre, addressing a wide variety of different audiences, right? So all of that in this great library collection of texts. Therefore, what's almost automatically the wrong thing to do is simply take one line, wrench it out of all those contexts, and say, oh, clearly that's what what God is saying or what the Bible is teaching. That's a bit like taking a li- one line from one character of Shakespeare, one of the plays, and say, oh, Shakespeare says, you know, uh, I think I've used the example before, people often cite Apollonius from Hamlet, neither a borrower nor a lender be and all that. Well, Polonius is an idiot. Polonius is a clown. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's a pathetic sort of buffoonish figure in, in the Hamlet. So now take one line out of one speech of a buffoon in Hamlet and say, oh, as Shakespeare says, well, there's something similar when you do something like that with the Bible and say, oh, there's this one line, let me take it out of every possible context and simply identify it with the divine will. That is ipso facto a bad way to read the Bible. Let me just say that right off the bat. And once we get over that, we can start looking at the Bible with more sophisticated hermeneutical strategies in place. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Let's stick for just a little longer at this 30,000-foot level of general principles because I want to focus on another way that I think the Bible is commonly misread. Whenever I hear skeptics say, the Bible teaches blank, 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 Mm -hmm. it inevitably is falling into these same areas. They pick one verse and they assume either this is what the Bible commands or this is what God wants. There's no nuance that sometimes the Bible contains prescriptive commands, but other times it's describing things that have gone awry. Or uh, in the Psalms, for example, you have Psalms of lament that are are real men, you know, expressing their emotion or angst, but that's not reflective of how God feels necessarily. You know, the famous one, Bishop, you've heard this one too, I'm sure, you know, we should take our enemies and bash their children's head against <laughs> yeah. the rocks. And yeah. I hear, so clearly I hear God all wants the time that. saying, see, <laughs> yeah, the Bible teaches that we should do that, or God <laughs> wants babies' heads to be bashed against the rocks. Is, right. is that a good reading? 
No, and see, take now the Psalms, for example. Uh, it's not like just the Bible. The Psalms are a collection of um, songs, poems, we probably say. How do poems function? Well, poems are very complex, very complex literary genre. Uh, they're doing and accomplishing all sorts of things. One thing that a poem does is it often gives the author a chance to vent or express in a richly imagistic way his feelings, his, his aspirations, his frustrations, right? Um, is the Spirit of God blowing through these texts? And that's indeed what the word inspiration means, that they're inspired by the Spirit of God. Does it mean that now every, every word, every phrase, wrenched out of context, that's what God is desiring? No. These are poems, songs that contain the words of men. Now, there's Vatican II, right? The Bible is the word of God, yes, indeed, but in the words of men. Now, that means in historically uh, conditioned, particular contexts, under certain literary forms of expression, with often the baggage, emotional, psychological, cultural that's involved in any particular historical situation. Therefore, we've got to be very careful as we try to discern what is of the Spirit of God here in the midst of a text that is very particular and historically and psychologically conditioned. Another distinction, Brandon, I think I've made on this program before, is from William Plaker, the late... Uh, Protestant theologian, where he says, we must distinguish between what's in the Bible and what the Bible teaches. What's in the Bible, there's all kinds of things in the Bible. As I say, proof texting, I can prove anything from the Bible, what's in the Bible. But what the Bible teaches, Plaker would say, is often a function of the themes and patterns and trajectories inherent in the Bible as a whole. So what's the Bible teaching? Well, I think we, tend, we would attend to those matters. Is there a consistent theme that can be found throughout the biblical text? Is there a pattern of meaning that emerges again and again? Is there a trajectory going from Genesis all the way to Revelation where you say, ah, under, the, uh, under that trajectory, I can sort of gather the meaning of this whole text. That's a much better way to get at what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm going to add something, because I'm a Catholic, Plaker was a Protestant, is we've got the church that now helps us read the Bible. We don't just pick it up and, oh, there it is, there's the line, I understand that, here's what it means, oh, got it. No, no, we Catholics say, no, in fact, you shouldn't read the Bible that way. You should read the Bible liturgically, and you should read it within the context of the church, which means the magisterial teaching of the church, and that long tradition of interpretation, theologians and poets and popes and writers, etc. So all of that context is much needed when we approach this complex set of, of texts that we call the Bible. All right. Well, with those general principles in place, those interpretive tools about how to understand the Bible, let's narrow in on this issue of violence in the Old Testament. Again, it mainly crops up in the historical books of the Old Testament. You'll find some of it in the Psalms as well. In your book that you've been working on, Bishop Barron, Bob's Big Bible Book, um, you offer three different ways to read these violent passages. And it's 
it's not as if the church requires only one of these three ways. Right. Um, these different views have been held by some of the brightest minds in the church. We'll get to them uh, in detail in a moment. The first way is held by Irenaeus. The second way is held by St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. And then the third way is held by many of the earlier church fathers, such as Origen, John Cassian, and others. Um, so there's a wide diversity of, of ways to read this. But before we get to those three ways, I want to get uh, uh, out of the way the Marcionite temptation. Yeah. Um, talk about who Marcion was and how he read the Old Testament in general, but these how he dealt with these violent passages in particular. Yeah, it's a way of dissolving the problem. So Marcion's a second century figure based ultimately in Rome who teaches very clearly. It's a very clear and, and in some ways um, helpful doctrine because if you want to solve these problems, it's an easy solution. Namely, the Old Testament represents the revelation of a fallen God. So like within a Gnostic framework, you've got the creator God is a sort of fallen, compromised deity. And so what has to do with him is, is going to be morally problematic and spiritually uh, misleading, etc. So the God of creation, the God that declares all things good? Are you kidding? Say only a fallen God would do that. And who, you know, rages with, with anger and commands all these terrible things. Well, that's a fallen God. We should get rid of that God. And it's only the God revealed in sections of the New Testament. So Marcion was, was actually unhappy with a lot of the New Testament because there was too much of the Old Testament in it for him. So certain passages in the New Testament that he felt was about the true God. Now, there are a lot of people today who are at least crypto-Marcionites because they'll say something like, well, I don't like all that Old Testament stuff, you know, the angry God. Of, I like the God of Jesus, you know. Now, that's simplistic and problematic in so many ways, but one of its problems is it's a neo-Marcionism. The church, and one of my heroes, St. Irenaeus, is one of the key figures here, said no to Marcion and has said no over and over again across the centuries. By the way, read someone like Rudolf Bultmann, who was much read when I was going through seminary. Very influential biblical figure in like the 20s, 30s, and 40s of the last century. He was a self-confessed Marcionite, and, and he was hugely influential in biblical circles. And is there, in fact, a kind of anti-Semitism in a fair amount of contemporary biblical scholarship? Yeah, sadly, there was. That's the, that's the ghost of Marcion howling again, you know? So we have to avoid that temptation. Rather, see, and I'm anticipating my conclusion here a little bit, but we have to read the Old Testament in light of the New. Uh, we don't eliminate the Old Testament in favor of the New. Rather, we read the Old in light of the New. And then we're going to shed a lot more light, I think. Okay, so we can move past the, the simple but unacceptable approach of Marcion, which is just to say, yeah, there is an Old Testament God, there's a New Testament God, they're different, so let's get rid of the Old Testament yeah. God. Um, Catholics wouldn't follow that path. But let's look at these three paths that are positive, acceptable approaches. So the first one, and I'm going to quote here a lot from your book in progress here, Bob's Big Bible Book, you call it the divine pedagogy approach, and mm. it's embodied or represented by St. Irenaeus. Um, talk about this approach. Well, you know, Irenaeus is one of the most important figures. As I record these words, it's the Feast of St. Polycarp, and uh, Irenaeus said, I was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by John. And so he claimed this very strong apostolic heritage, and he's influential in so many different ways, one of the great um, figures in the early church. Irenaeus said, what you find in the Bible is not just, okay, God speaks 
truth at the same level at all times across the board. Rather, what you see, he said, is the ongoing education of Israel in the direction of the fullness of revelation. Now, Brandon, you're the father of young kids, so you know exactly what he's talking about here. So if, if little Gilbert said to you, how, he's three, right? He said to you, Daddy, where, do, where does the sun go at night? You might say, uh, well, the sun goes to bed at night the way you do. And so he's gone to sleep and now you have to go to sleep. Appropriate for his age? Of course, of course. And that satisfies him and, okay, the sun goes to sleep. Um, who's a little bit older now than, than Gilbert? You've got um, Augustine. Is, who's, like, let's say Gianna. Right, how old is she? Gianna's six. <laughs> She's six, Okay. So Gianna asks about the sun, and you say, oh, well, the sun, you know, he goes across the sky, starts in the east, and he goes across the sky, and then he goes down in the west. Okay. Is that true? Well, it's, it's appropriate for someone at her age to kind of understand, you know. Now, one of your older kids, so now, let's say Isaiah is asking about the sun, and you say, we well, you know, actually, the sun doesn't really go anywhere at night. The sun doesn't really move across the sky. In fact, it's the earth is moving around the sun. And so it only looks that way. Wow, no kidding. That's, boy, that's an interesting. I thought he just went to bed at night. You told me when I was three. Then you told me he went across the sky. Now I'm getting a richer perspective. Okay, now Isaiah is in his early 20s. And he's a smart kid, and he's reading like crazy. Now you got him reading Stephen Hawking, and you got him reading all the top, you know, astrophysicists. Good. What you've done there, you've been educating your kids in a way that was appropriate to their stage of development, right? So this is ancient now. This is not some newfangled modern theory. This is Irenaeus in the in the second century, who says, "So you find something similar in the in the biblical revelation." Are there parts of the Bible, indeed the answer is yes, let's say in the book of Genesis, where God is presented as a humanoid figure, right? He's got a body and he's got hands and he's got a voice and, and he walks, you know, through the Garden of Eden and, and um, uh, to Moses he said, I'm going to walk by, but you only see me from behind, you know. Well, God's being understood there as like a, a figure, like us, you know, like one of the Olympian gods maybe. Now, later on in the Bible, uh, out of a burning bush comes a voice, right? Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. What's your name, Lord, if they ask me? I am who I am. Okay, <laughs> are we dealing with a humanoid figure kind of like us? No, it's a much more spiritualized, right, understanding. Now, go forward to Deutero-Isaiah. So Isaiah, let's say, around the chapter 50 or so. What do you find but these magnificent descriptions? of the creator God, right, who brings all things into being from nothing. Is anyone like me? No, there's no God like me. I can't, no one can compare with me. I'm not like any creature. I'm not like any God. Well, now we're getting in the ballpark of, of Thomas Aquinas, that God is not a being, but ipsum esse subsistence. God is the source of all. Okay, okay. So what's happening there? But an unfolding of revelation in a way that was appropriate to the various stages of Israel's development, right? There's a gradual pedagogy, Irenaeus would say, an education of the race, all preparing us, by the way, for the fullness of revelation that will happen in Jesus. In fact, Irenaeus says, the Old Testament is though God and humanity are sort of trying each other on, like you're trying on clothes, you know? is they're getting suited to one another gradually 
so as to prepare for the fullness of the Incarnation. Okay, so with that principle in mind, how do we look at texts like our famous problematic texts from Joshua and Judges and, you know, the gods putting the ban and so on? Might we read those as a relatively primitive moment in Israel's understanding of the intentions of God? So you're warlike people, right? And you're, you're reaching for metaphors to express God's power. What are you going to say? Uh, God, God killed, I think, two-fifths of the people. <laughs> God, God eliminated, oh, I think a hundred out of, you know, two thousand. No, you're going to say things like, God eliminated all our enemies. God crushed our enemies. He destroyed everybody. Well, might we read that as a, as a poetic expression of God's power at a certain stage of Israel's spiritual and moral development? Might we read it, and some suggest this, as, if you want to put it this way, Israel only partially understanding what the will of God is. Just as one of your little kids might partially understand you when you're talking about the sun and the planets, right? They're going to kind of get it, but not fully get it. What's the trajectory now? We'll go from those texts all the way to this abandoned, crucified criminal crying out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, And over his cross is the sign saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Is that the full expression, the authentic expression of what God's power is like? Mind you, how God truly crushes his enemies, not through violent warfare, but rather through the love that absorbs the evil of the world. Now, you see what I'm doing here is is take that comparison with the sun goes to bed at night, little Gilbert, the sun goes across the sky, little Gianna, the the sun actually, we go around the sun, Isaiah, and now Stephen Hawking. We're we're getting an ever-increasing, increasingly sophisticated account, right? And so might these texts in the Old Testament represent not so much false accounts, but accounts appropriate to Israel's educational development, right? But we want to read the whole thing from the standpoint of the fullness of the revelation in the cross of Jesus. That might be an Irenaean approach to this issue. Very good. So that's interpretive path one, the Irenaean approach. Again, we might call it divine pedagogy, that God is teaching or revealing himself gradually more and more over time. Let's turn to the second approach. Um, This is approach favored by two of the greatest doctors and minds in the church, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, and you describe it as the divine justice approach to reading these passages. How does this reading go? You know, and a contemporary uh, example of this, Brandon, someone that we both know, namely William Lane Craig, I think would adopt this sort of interpretive uh, program. Well, what you find in Augustine and Aquinas is this. God's the Lord of life. God gives life. It's God's prerogative to take life away. Now, we're not the lords of life. That's why we have a commandment like, don't kill. I mean, it's not my pride. I don't give life, and I have no right to take life away. Self-defense, you know, those exceptions, etc. But the general principle is, I don't have command over life, so I can't just do that without moral blame. 
But God can, because God is the Lord of all things, and God, you know, the, what does the psalm say, that God breathes life into us, and when he, when he takes the breath away, we return to the dust. I mean, so God gives, God takes away. Does God, at the end of the day, kill all of us? <laughs> if, if we keep our distinction from, from last week in mind, God's active will, God's permissive will, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we all die. Whether we're killed by a sword, we're killed by a bomb, we're killed by a heart attack, we're killed by cancer, we're killed by a car accident, at the end of the day, God has given us life and God takes life away. That's God's prerogative, right? Now, next step. Does God sometimes express this in terms of his justice, that God punishes people for their sin precisely by taking life away? Yeah, I think you'd have to do hermeneutical acrobatics to avoid that in in the Bible, that God sometimes punishes just that way. Next step, does God delight in using secondary causes? Yeah, that's a good Thomistic principle, right? That God often involves us in his work. So this is now Augustine, Aquinas, William Lane Craig. Might God be using Israel, the Israelite armies of Joshua and so on, to exercise and express his justice as he punishes wicked people. So again and again, to be fair, in these texts, in Joshua and so on, the various peoples of, of, of Canaan and Palestine are described as, as wicked people, as idolaters and murderers, and, and they're perverted in so, so many ways. So is God punishing them and using the instrumentality of the Israelite army to affect his will? Yeah, say Augustine, Aquinas, and William Lane Craig. Um, something right in this approach? Yeah, the principle strikes me as right. God, the giver of life, that God uh, has the prerogative of taking life away, that it's, you know, finally is God's business if he chooses to punish in that way. I think we can't really quarrel with that. Is there a limitation of this approach? Yeah, I mean, if you say the harem, the, the ban... Every person, every woman, every child, every animal, are they all are they all such sinners? They deserve that sort of fate. Now, Aquinas' way out is to say, well, look, original sin. Through original sin, everyone deserves punishment. Everyone is, uh, is liable to divine uh, punishment. Okay. But, but still, do we hesitate a bit? at this as the only approach to this question, and I would, I'd be more at home with the Irenaean sort of education approach, and I'd be more at home with Irenaeus, but, um, or rather with, um, uh, with Origen. But is there something right in this? Yeah, I think it provides some illumination as we look at these texts through this lens. All right, so that's the second option on the table, the divine justice approach favored by Augustine and Aquinas. We've heard the Irenaean approach, we've heard that one. Let's turn to the third way to interpret and read these passages, and it's the allegorical approach, probably best associated with Origen, the great church father and biblical interpreter, um, but also many other early church fathers. You'll find this way of reading in their writings, including John Cassian, among others. How does this approach work, Bishop? Well, this is a very ancient tradition. So uh, go back to um, someone like Philo in the, in the Jewish tradition. He's a, he's a contemporary of Jesus in the first century. 
um, but it was very popular among the church fathers to allegorize the scriptures. So to read the literal text as, as a kind of allegory of spiritual themes and Christological themes. So here, Origen, you know, this is, again, there's nothing new about this. The ancient figures understood this problem. Origen knew, look, how do you square the, the God of, of, um, of Jesus who dies, you know, as a crucified victim on the cross? Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who maltreat you, resist not evil. How do you reconcile that, Jesus, with these commands from the Old Testament? Well, Origen, his first move is very important, I think. He says we should read the whole Bible from the standpoint of the last book of the Bible. And more specifically, he means the scene in the book of Revelation where the lamb standing as though slain emerges. We're up in the, in the heavenly court, and this, the um, scroll with the seven seals is presented. And the scroll is representative, you might say, of the whole of Scripture, the whole of history. And they say, well, who will open these seals to the scroll? And no one can do it, and people are weeping. And then we hear, oh, oh, the lion of Judah, the lion will come and open the, the seals. But then <laughs> out comes not a lion, but a lamb the weakest of creatures, and then in this weird Greek formula, standing as though slain. So a lamb but slain, like the weakest type of figure. And of course, the reference is to the crucified lamb of God, right? And it's the lamb standing as though slain who opens the seals, opens the scroll. Origen's point is, Christ crucified, is the ultimate hermeneutical lens, interpretive lens, through which we should read the whole Bible. So he opens all the seven seals. He opens the scroll. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is now read through the lens of this um, lamb standing as though slain. Therefore, what? If you do what Richard Dawkins does, and you read these ancient texts from the Old Testament as indicative of a, of a wildly cruel, insanely genocidal figure, you are reading them wrong. You are just not reading them correctly. Okay, so therefore, what is the more correct method? And here, Origen begins to allegorize. Israel, under Joshua. Now, mind you, Joshua, it's Jesus' name, Yeshua, right? Uh, Jesus in Greek is just the Greek rendering of Yeshua. So the, the, Joshua is an anticipation of Jesus. Joshua now entering the promised land. Well, what's that? Now entering into the land of, of salvation. But what's he going to face? He's going to face all those ites you mentioned, the Jebusites and Hivites and <laughs> Amorites. He's going to face these figures who are symbolic of evil in its various forms. So don't think primarily here of real people on, on the ground. Think of these now as allegories of sin, cruelty, hatred, violence, superstition, idolatry. See, they, they symbolize all of that. Yeshua, Jesus, with his army, the Israelites, who are they but the church? Right? The church militant, the church that's fighting its way now to, to conquer for Christ the earth, but in battle against all of these uh, opposing forces. How should you battle evil? Well, 
Don't mess around with it. Now take a text. Now we're going up to like 1 Samuel and Saul's failure, right? When the Lord says to put the ban on the Amalekites and Saul conquers them, defeats them, but then doesn't put the ban. He, he preserves some of the livestock, some of the people and the king, right? Agag, for himself. And Prophet Samuel comes in. No, no, no. Saul, what's this I hear? There's that king and there's the livestock. What are you doing? Oh, you know, I, I conquered them all right, but I kept a little bit for myself. And Samuel hacks Agag to pieces. <laughs> you know, and we say, okay, what is going on there? Well, Saul represents the way a lot of us deal with evil. We kind of play around with it. We fight it, yeah. We resist it, yeah, to some degree. We, we tend to keep a little bit for ourselves, right? Uh, take any form of evil, your pride, your envy, your, your lust, your, your hatred, your violence. We deal with them. We bring them kind of under the control of Yeshua, of Jesus. But then we kind of leave a little bit for ourselves, right? But the point is, you got to hack Agag to pieces, man. you got, you got to deal all the way down with these powers of, of resistance. Um, I think I've used this image before, but, you know, if I went to um, Pope Francis and said, you know, I, Pope Francis, I, I love you know, being a priest, love being a bishop, and, you know, I'm, I'm celibate 95% of the time. You know, I really love celibacy, but, you know, 5% of the time, well, I mean, who'd be happy with that arrangement? Or you said that to your wife, you know, I'm, oh, gosh, I love you with my whole heart, but, and I'm faithful to you 90% of the time. Well, no, I mean, you've got, you have to eliminate totally from your life, these forms of, of um, infidelity and of evil. Um, yeah, I've kind of conquered my pride, but I, I still kind of keep a little to myself. Or, you know, my, my lust, it's kind of under control, but there's still a little bit that, no, 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 you got to deal with evil all the way down. So now Origen has the way to understand these texts. They're not about a, a cruel, marauding, genocidal God. They're allegories of the spiritual struggle that we have to, if we want to enter the promised land, we can't mess around with evil. We have to deal with it all the way down and bring all of it under the control of Joshua, of Yeshua. Now, for my money, Brandon, we looked at these three paths. Each one, I think, has value. I've always liked this one the best. I've always found this the most satisfying way to read these texts. And not not uh, rejecting what's legitimate in the first two, and nor nor denying there might be other paths of interpretation that are, are valid. But bottom line, read everything in the Bible from the standpoint of Yeshua, of, of Jesus, and you won't go wrong. I like the third path because it doesn't require you to soften the yeah. level of violence in the That's passages. Right. Like maybe the first path, if Israel is relatively... Uh, young or new in understanding God's will, you might have to soften these commands and, and say, well, they were just engaged in exaggerated rhetoric when they said, I'm going to wipe everybody out. It's like Muhammad Ali saying, I'm going to destroy yeah. my opponent or wipe the floor with him. But in the, on the origin approach, you don't have to do that. You could say, no, he right. really means he wants you to wipe out every man and woman and child yeah. and animal. That's right. And, and it was right. What's helpful there too is Oh, the animals, you know, God bless them. Well, see, that's evocative of the ways that, again, we kind of play around with evil. Like, oh, well, you know, that's not going to do me any harm, is it? This little, this little sin of mine. Yeah, man, that little sin of yours, I know it looks attractive to you, but that's going to cause trouble. 
Or it's like, you know, the doctor, hey, I got, I got 97% of that tumor out, and uh, you know, you'll be fine. <laughs> Would you be comforted by that? No, you got to remove evil in its totality. I've used the example, too, Brandon, of, of the cross of Jesus. That's hacking Agag to pieces. What I mean is he went into battle with sin and death all the way down. Um, you're talking nerd stuff. Think of, of you know Gandalf and the descent, right? When he he has to battle these forces all the way down, and he can't just say, "Oh, we'll be fine. I think we got him under control. He won't bother us." No, man, he will bother you. Trust me. You got to battle him all the way down. I think those are good ways to get at it. I think a lot of my friends favor this allegorizing approach as well as you do. Um, the one hesitation I found some people have with this approach is they're, they're nervous about untethering events in the Old Testament from history. So they would say yep. like, you know, I could read the Exodus story, for example, in an allegorical way and it have these beautiful and profound spiritual parallels to the New Testament. But does that mean we assume nothing that happened in the Exodus story really happened? Or in, in this case, was there not really someone like Joshua or someone like Samuel who really did these events? Talk about the connection between the allegor allegorical approach and then the historical nature of these texts. Well, you know, in the Church Fathers, you have the four senses of Scripture, and the historical sense or the literal sense uh, is always the primary one, and that's the primary reference. So that our biblical people from ancient times till today have always realized that groundedness in history matters. Um, so, yeah, I would never say we untether these things from history. Now, having said that, do we find in the Bible history in the modern sense of the term? Well, clearly, no. The way we would write history, you know, with 10,000 footnotes and trying to be as, as sort of journalistically accurate as possible about exactly what happened— well, no one in the ancient world wrote history that way. That's not just the Bible, but look at, at, at uh, classical sources. No one wrote history that way. They always wrote it in a kind of um, interested manner. That's to say, they were trying to, to um, propagate a point of view, or they were trying to bring out a moral point. Well, the same is true in, in the Bible. Book of Exodus, Book of Joshua, historically grounded. Sure, yeah, I have no hesitation saying that. But is it history in the modern sense? No. It's what I would call theologically and spiritually elaborated history. It's history told with a theological and spiritual purpose. You know, just to give you one example, Brandon. I don't know any scholar or archaeologist today who thinks what's described in the book of Joshua, namely the overcoming of Jericho just in that manner, the conquest of the city of Ai, the destruction and the putting the haram, the band on all... There's, there's almost no archaeological, there is no archaeological evidence for that. So did it happen just as it's being described? I would say no. Did it happen? Yeah. But what we have in the Bible is theologically elaborated history. And then origin comes back into the picture. Like, okay, yes, this happened. Yes, Israel moved into the promised land. Yes, there was a conflict with the uh, peoples that were there. But now how do we read and interpret the theological elaboration that's going on in those texts. And I think that's what's, you know, uppermost in his mind.